Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here today with a few colleagues to discuss a book that we all have recently read, and it's titled Free to Learn, Why Unleashing the Instinct to Play Will Make Our Children Happier, More Self-Reliant, and Better Students for Life. Um, it's authored by Dr. Peter Gray, and um, Peter Gray came on to the podcast at the end of uh, spring 2023. Um, you can find that episode under season five and the episode number is uh, 291. Um, so he was one of the most interesting people that I've had on the podcast. Um, it's a little bit of a longer one, but I just didn't want to cut him off because it, it uh, a lot of things rang very true to me uh, in that podcast. And then I realized that he's written a book. This book came out a few years, uh, a few years ago. Um, so I sent out an invite to colleagues to see if they're interested in doing a book club to kind of unpack this. Um, I think my rules for book clubs is it has to be on Audible. So I guess that's why I do podcasts. But I definitely listen to the book, and that's the only um, uh, pleasure reading that I read. Uh, everything else is on PDFs and reading some dense research article. But... Um, so I have two colleagues here, um, and we're going to go around just so they can do a very brief introduction. So if you're listening to this, uh, you can tag the name to the voice that you hear. So uh, first, Ingrid, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, uh, Ingrid Johnson. I teach at Grand Valley State University and um, a variety of classes for health and uh, PE majors. Awesome. And Sean? Hi, my name is Sean Fullerton. I'm a fourth year PhD candidate here at the University of New Mexico, um, teaching, doing research, and being of, of service underneath Dr. Karen Goodrow. Cool. Well, welcome to both and everybody who's listening. Um, I wanted to start off with this question of um, how you grew up, just to understand kind of where our mindsets are coming from when we um, have this discussion for the next several minutes. Uh, but so I'll give you a brief background for me. Like I, I grew up in Finland. I was born and raised in Finland in a smaller town. Um, so my early memories of what I was allowed to do as a kid uh, was just ride my bike anywhere, unsupervised, like, um, you know, the stuff that uh, Dr. Gray talks about when he was doing that in the 60s and 70s. Like, that's what I was doing in the 80s, 90s in Finland, like my my time to go back was when the street lights came on and then it was just that that was the time for dinner and i spent a lot of time unsupervised and in the book they talk about how finland has the the lowest age of like when socially people are okay with kids being by themselves like walking to school at age seven and using public transportation by themselves at like age nine. So my elementary school in second, third, fourth grade, like I biked to school, I walked to school uh, and it was like not close. It was like three kilometers through the woods kind of thing. And I remember as a kid, I, I skied to school a couple times and, you know, one vivid memory I have is that my dad drove me to school once and it was because I had some appointment and it was just like whoa Risto's dad is dropping him off in a car how special 
And that was that was like one time that I remember getting picked up or dropped off at school. Every other time it was just me and a bunch of friends just kind of cruising through the forest and coming home. So, uh, Ingrid, what what about you? How did you relate to the way that um, Dr. Gray was talking about growing up and having a lot of freedom? Yeah, definitely. I grew up in the 70s and 80s and, uh, you know, same thing. My signal to come home was when I heard my mom yell in the neighborhood, time to come home for dinner or when the sun would go down or somebody else's mom would be like, Ingrid, you have to go home. Um, You know, so very much unsupervised. And, you know, as a parent now, I think about like, our parents had no idea where we were. We had no cell phones, no GPS, no tracking, mm-hmm. you know, but we somehow we, we managed it and, and it was great and I enjoyed it. And I, I loved being outside and, and being active. Um, yeah. And, you know, even, even uh, taking the bus to school, the bus stop was a pretty good walk from where my house was. And I'd come home, no parents were home, latchkey kid, you know, all of this stuff. Um, and it, it's different now, you know, and even as a parent, it's been different for my kids. You know, I was one of the few parents to walk our kids to school in elementary school. That's only a couple blocks away from our house. Everybody else would take the bus. The line of cars to be dropping off is huge. Um, and, you know, I live in Michigan and even in the winter, only occasionally would be, would we drive and drop the kids off because, it's good to be out doing things. So you, you just dropped off your child to college. So they have left, or at least one of them. So do you feel like you, they had a different freedom as a, as a kid than what you did? Yeah, I don't think they had as much freedom uh, because there was my perception, right? More of a worry um, trying to, to caretake for your children. You know, I have no idea really what my parents, if they worried or not, it doesn't seem like they worried when I was gone all day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. But yeah, but so trying to find that balance as a parent now has been harder. Yeah. Um, Like have to go and do these things. I have to not worry, you know? Yeah. Uh, What about you, Sean? How, how did you grow up? Do you, did you relate to what you kind of read about? Is that similar or different? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I grew up uh, third, fourth, and fifth grade. Um, I actually did in Sydney, Australia. Uh, my family moved there for three years. And, you know, there's a lot of experiences in growing up, especially in Australia, that um, I was reminded of as I read the book. You know, walking to school, um, that was that was a big one. Uh, I still remember, um, you know, everybody walked to school and, you know, third grade, fourth grade, that was just kind of the normal. And I remember, you know, leaving school and the thing was you would walk past the row of cars and I'd always wait to see if my mom is there because, you know, very rarely would she come pick me up. And then I would see she's not there and that big, oh, I got to walk home. But, you know, I remember getting attacked by the magpies, you know, which is the birds walking through the woods and stuff. And so um, a lot of freedom, you know, I'm also reminded of like the handball courts uh, in the, in the school where I went to. You know, handball, uh, it's it's just a kind of a four-square game with a tennis ball. That was the thing before and after school. And it was completely, you know, all the kids were on the court. And, you know, there's no adults supervising. And it was like, 
it was just uh, amazing to see, you know, there's courts going on, one-on-one games, um, uh, four-person games. And so that was a huge part of my experience there. You know, again, completely run by, run by us kids. And then also cricket. You know, cricket can be played anywhere, and it's. I think it's an example of one of those modified games where you, you modify it to fit the kids that are playing it. And I remember playing, you know, me and just one other friend, you know, in, 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 um, in the front yard, making up all the rules and things like that. And pl- uh, play and sport, you know, have, have been a, a pillar of my upbringing. And, you know, same thing. My mom, would she, she used to be a police officer, so she had this really loud whistle. Like, you know, she just put mm-hmm. her fingers and and do a loud whistle wherever you're at in the neighborhood. You heard the whistle, it's time to come home. Um, so yeah, a lot of the stuff resonated with me and, and you know, I started to think back to those those uh, memories growing up. So do you feel like, did, did you move back to the US after fifth grade? Yeah, I, uh, I left at the end of second grade and then I moved back in the middle of fifth grade. So do you think that there's a, do you remember there being like a freedom change for you? Like what you're allowed to do in Australia versus when you came back to the U.S.? Or was it like you got to a certain age and you got that freedom because you were a little older? Um, not not really. I don't really remember a difference. I think it was just more of like a cultural difference as far as, you know, going from Australia to back here because, you know, we wore school uniforms. Um we walked to and from school and, you know, it was, it was more of the thing for me was just like socializing. Cause when I went to Australia, it was like, I was the American kid. Mm -hmm. And then when I came back to America, I was the Australian kid. Mm -hmm. Um, But as far as, as far as play and activity goes, you know, during recess, I still, you know, went out and played all the way up through, through middle school and, and those sorts of things. So I didn't really um, remember or notice a drastic difference. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like when I, so when I moved here, I was I was young, and then we moved back. So we did more like, I moved in the middle of first grade, moved back for third grade to Finland, third and fourth grade, then moved back in sixth grade to the U.S. So by sixth grade in the U.S., you're largely, like most people say, a sixth grader can ride their bike to and from school unsupervised. So I kind of just kept doing what I was doing in, in Finland and like, first grade or third grade or fourth grade. Um, so I, I think it's interesting in that sense of like where you're allowed to start doing your own kind of stuff and doing that doing that in, in your free time. But I'm wondering how this relates to physical education in the way that, you know, in your past teaching or the way that you teach future students, how much self-directed learning are those students or children getting in the way that you plan or in the way that you teach future teachers? Do you feel like Ingrid, you teach self, like do you, do you teach a structured lesson or are you like, Hey, remember to have self-directed learning or choice or the dreaded free time. These are air quotes. I'm using free time, free play is so like, judged in in physical education if you provide kids free time it's, it's the equivalent of rolling out the ball right where, where do you where do you think ingrid yeah that's that's a really good question and especially after reading the book right mm-hmm. um i think at different times in my career i've done different things when i was teaching in the k-12 system there 
I did see a value in free time, um, but not as a staple. Like I never was the one to do like a free Friday, every Friday. Mm -hmm. um, but I did, did during my lessons offer free opportunities, you know, like, hey, if you want to play a full on game, you can go here. If you want to work on these skills, we're going to do this here, you know, so trying to kind of find a balance. I think since I've been in higher ed, um, kind of the same thing, trying to find that balance. Um, but I would say in the last four or five years since I started teaching and created our outdoor ed methods class, I really had a much bigger push for play. Um, but I also think there there does have to be a balance. We can't just only do play mm -hmm. in physical education, but play absolutely should be a part of kids' lives, right? And so, like, I talk to my students about helping the other teachers at the school or the administrators at schools understand that recess should be not guided by anyone. Recess should be free time. Recess should be offered a lot. There should be opportunities for play before and after school, right, for kids. Um, and so I try to have those conversations, and it's I'm really torn, right, after reading this book, really torn about what my role is uh, in higher ed and preparing teachers in, on this concept. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at some of the research out there, they push structured recess. They push, like, some of the, you know, if you look at, uh, CISPAP, like part of CISPAP is having the PE teacher have some structure, the mm -hmm. best practices for elementary interventions to increase uh, moderate to vigorous physical activity is structuring recess and having that. Um, look, there's, there's a lot of different ways to think what structured recess is. It could be having access to a lot of materials like jump ropes and balls and goals and different areas and grass areas and teaching them playground games that they can play versus like strict structure. But a lot of advocates are saying like, this is what you need to do is to increase MVPA is to structure recess. Whereas what this book is talking about, and if you think about play, and you think about just letting the kids unplug for a little bit and not be directed from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. when they get picked up at the very last minute from their, you know, from their parents that are working all, the whole time, you know. So I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Sean, about the kind of structure, unstructure and where does where does that stand? Yeah, this, this book really, you know, I listened to the podcast with Dr. Gray and I was like blown away. So that's why I wanted to hop on the book club. And it's, the book, you know, really flips everything on its head for mm -hmm. me. Um, and there's a couple things, you know, I was, uh, this was over the summer and there was a football camp that I was doing for youth and adolescents. So from that third to eighth grade range. And there's, you know, I start to see things from a different lens. So the first thing that I'm real, I really kind of, it brought um, Don Hellison's TPSR model to kind of the forefront with that, um, you know, that, that inclusive teaching style, that choice, and where it's really the students are provided the opportunity to be responsible, you know, kind of on their own to a degree, um, as well as, you know, those the, the spectrum teaching styles more down towards the student-directed teaching style. Mm -hmm. So I really... Those, those came to the forefront um, for me. And then also, you know, I, I started to notice, you know, kids are so programmed in our schools to 
have the right answer, right? And so working with coaches with the youth camp, I, I, one recommendation I made was like, just ask, ask them questions. Like when they're doing skills and when they're, when they're playing, like, you know, what were you thinking there? And it seems like the kids are so programmed to give you a right answer. And it, it's almost like a, a, a stage of unlearning where mm-hmm. you, you know, you have to tell them there is no right answer I'm looking for. I just want to get, you know, I just want to try to understand what you're thinking, you know, when you make that decision or when you perform that skill. Um, and then I did think of the CSPAP, you know, there was a manuscript that um, uh, I'm, I'm uh, writing and, you know, trying to get published right now, but it talks about those activity zones. And in the manuscript, I state that it's really has to be a, a conscious decision whether you do those activity zones or not, because, um, you know, I feel like sometimes kids may or may not know how to play because of the lack of opportunities for free play. So, you know, sometimes you can offer them a little bit of structure, but that might not be appropriate all the time. You know, if kids are playing, then I don't think there's any need for an, an, an intervention. Um, and the last thing I thought was interesting is, you know, I saw a, uh, a mentor uh, back home in Oregon. He runs a strength conditioning uh, program, and I recommended this book. And, you know, he kind of affords a lot of athlete-directed activities. You know, he lets them do gymnastics for 20 minutes, and he will say, you know, he doesn't coach. There's no skill cues, you know, other than basic safety um, requirements. But he doesn't say rotate from this station to this station to this station. It's all driven by the, by the players. And so, you know, one idea I had I thought would be cool is um, – if he's good at, you know, he wants to do like a little uh, athletic development skills camp. And one of the stations would be, you know, the group has to create a game and the game has to fit this criteria to make a game. And the kids create it, you know, it's completely created by the, by the players. I think that really enhances that critical thinking, creativity, uh, intrinsic motivation. And so that's kind of what stuck out to me as far as preparing, you know, future teachers is that you, you got to offer um, those things in your program, you know, rather than just that direct instruction, you know, constantly telling kids, kids what they can and can't do. Right. Yeah. And, you know, in the book, he brought up this uh, interesting, not in, he brought up a point about the high school sports and how high school sports is increasingly competitive and basically, the way that is structured now, it forces the majority of high school students to become spec- spectators. And I think that's spot on. Like, there are very few programs that you can walk onto. Like, if you want to play basketball and you've never played basketball, there are very few high schools that will let you be on a team. Now, wrestling, totally different. You walk into a wrestling room, people are like, come on in. Like, you don't know how to wrestle? Like, we'll teach you, right? But soccer, right? You have to be on like a travel team or you have to have played for years leading up to, you know, high school sports to be able to even walk onto a bench warming seat on a freshman team, you know, because it's so popular. And I think, you know, if you ask somebody that doesn't know the U.S. system very well, they talk about how glorious it is, how great it is that America allows high school sports and it's so sports oriented and it's so cool that you can have that like 
piece of representing your high school and everybody gets to play something. It's like, no. Like, if you don't know, if your parents haven't paid for you to be able to be physically active and learn those skills, there's no way that you make a high school sport in the in the major sports like baseball, softball, basketball, soccer. Yeah, some okay, so like you can make marching band or something like that or whatever, but it, it's so limiting in the US. And when you think about where can you then play? Like what is the adult reentry as an 18-year-old not attending college? Where can you go play soccer for the first time ever? Like, there's some, there's some like adult leagues for sure, but like, you know, those are college players or high school players who've played soccer before. They want to be in a competitive indoor league. And if you've never played soccer, you just get left behind. And you look at what are the other ways, you know, where, what is adult reentry? You, you can go into a jujitsu place and they're like, all right, white belt. 35 year old woman, whatever, like, come on in. Like you have the re-entry into those, but these other sports, it's either beer league softball and you're drinking beer while you're playing. And then, then it's the gym. You just go in and work out or ride your bike or go on hikes. So I don't know. I think, I think there's a lot to improve in the sports, sports section. Uh, Ingrid? Yeah, and don't you think that that it contributes to a lot of the health issues that we have in our age, in, in aging population? Because there isn't somewhere that you can just go for fun, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it starts early. Like, you know, my oldest daughter, when she was in high school, she was active, but she didn't, she wasn't a year round sports person. And so in high school, she and her friends discovered that they could join the, the high school girls JV tennis team because they didn't have enough people who wanted to go out for it. And they had fun, right? Like, they had fun. They were very good. She lost every game, you know, for a whole year or so. But they had fun doing it. And at the same time, lots of her other friends uh, who had been doing year-round baseball, basketball, they were quitting when they got to high school because Mm -hmm. they were burnt out. And they didn't have fun anymore. And I think that, you know, that, that kind of sums it up. Like, it's not fun anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and that was... yeah, that's a that's a oh sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, that's a that's a great um question is where do people you know, where do people go, you know, that are older and want to engage in these, you know, types of activities. Um and this that question really reminds me of those long term athletic development models. Um because a kind of a a principle the principle of those is to keep youth and adolescents in physical activity programs for as long as possible and as many as possible. Right. And I feel, you know, to your point, Risto, I, our programs are very exclusive and, you know, there is a degree of elitism in those Mm -hmm. programs. And, um, just, uh, yesterday in print in Jopern, um, was a piece that I wrote on using curricular models in, K-12 physical education to foster that long-term athletic development. And it's all kind of underpinned by that as many as possible for as long as possible so that when they do get to adulthood, um, they not only have the the skills 
to engage in those activities, but you know, they, they enjoy it and they can, and they can play. And I just don't think there's a, that many community outlets, Yeah. you know, for adults that want to do some of those activities. I think that's why a lot of people are gravitating more towards resistance training, um, obviously because of the health benefits, but it's kind of a, um, a lower entry level as far as uh, the skills go, you know, and not as competitive, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more, um, it's more, uh, you know, just related to yourself. But you think of like golf, tennis, soccer, badminton. You, you're not going to enjoy those if you haven't really been exposed and developed the skills. You know, once you get to adulthood. Um, and uh, I think we kind of, we do have that uh, elitism and exclusive. Um, exclusive nature in, yeah. the, in our and America. and Justin O'Connor has talked about this a lot um, in this like non-traditional sports of uh, or unstructured sports that adults can do like yes going to the gym is what a lot of people do because you don't have to go with anybody you can do it at 6 a.m noon or 9 p.m and it doesn't matter so like what what Justin has talked about a lot is this idea of having you know, things like marathon running, you can train anytime you want. Bicycle riding, you can go with a friend or you can go without a friend, right? Soccer, you got to have 11 people who show up that are going to be on your team who are playing another 11 people. So now you have 22 plus subs need to get all their Tuesday afternoon coordination in. And that's where we start dropping off is, okay, now I have a job or I'm tired, or I have a night meeting, or I have a young infant, or I have a middle school kid who has to go and can't drive themselves, and I have to take them to practice. So then (laughs) your stuff kind of starts falling off. Whereas these non-traditional sports or these unstructured sports, you know, unstructured play, like you just go in, like we have a park down the street, almost every time that I've taken my daughter there, there are people playing basketball. Let's just pick up basketball. And if there's two people, they play one-on-one or they shoot around. And if there's six people, they play three-on-three. And so, like, well, you can structure those, but it doesn't matter. Like, if you don't show up on Tuesday, no one's going to call you out and be like, hey, you're not playing on Saturday because you didn't show up to practice on Tuesday. It's just, hey, today I can come and tomorrow I can't. And I'm just going to show up. So I think the, you know, the question is, are we structuring our physical education classes to teach that sort of team building? How do you make teams? How do you like build that? How do you, you know, hike? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you need to be prepared for a hike? Because you can do that almost any single day of the year if you have that access. How do you, you know, kayak or do something that you can do by yourself if you have access to it? I think, right, that's what's hard because one of my favorite uh parts in the book is where he says the result is a school-centric view of child development and that distorts human nature and then it talks about how schools are adult directed not child directed and so that's hard too right like it's not just our content area or our responsibility as the physical educators it's the whole school community and so how how do how do we help get that message across as well that it's it's not just in a silo right mm-hmm. yeah and and i think that you know he, he talks about other things that are motivating kids like one of the arguments that i heard was you know he he said that 
uh, that kids play video games because it's a place where they are not bothered by parents and it's one of the few places that kids can still make their own decisions. They can choose to go through door A or door B and they don't have to ask for permission. No parent, because they got their headphones on and they're just in the zone, no parents giving them advice. No parents giving them this like reason for why they should be doing something differently. It's just they go out and play, they fail, they come back, they do it again. They fail, they come back and do it again. Like students have an amazing amount of like grit and like stick to itness to go through these video games and then we say oh they they can't you know pay attention to this or that like you put them in front of a video game that they're engaged in it's it's a completely different world and it made me think I'm like wow like that seems that's seems logical to me that they have that freedom in a different world where they're not supervised did you did you relate to that at all? Yeah, that, I mean, video games always get uh, get knocked for being the reason that kids are less active, and um, that was another thing kind of flipped on its head. Where those are the, that's that play opportunity mm-hmm. and um, creativity, and you know, he cites the research that shows that kids that have a TV in their room or kids that play video games aren't necessarily less less physically active. Mm-hmm. Um, Kind of what both of you were saying, it reminded me of the of the stories from the Sudbury Valley School, where yep. the students they're driven by their interests in their learning. So there's no curriculum laid forth. They, through pursuing what they're really interested in, um, and then you know culminating in that in that fi- final project and presentation. Like, how can programs be designed so that students are able to really dive into what they enjoy? And, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's where the learning comes from. Yeah. So let me um, let me just interrupt real quick to give a, uh, mm-hmm. an understanding of what he explains Sudbury Valley School is. So his so Dr. Gray's research basically moved from like. He was doing research on rats and things like that. And then, you know, his son struggled with normal traditional school and they looked for different options. Um, So they found Sudbury Valley and basically Sudbury Valley Valley School up in Massachusetts. It's this alternative school that there are no teachers. There are staff and every staff member gets voted in or out to continue every single year in the students get to suggest like yes we want this teacher back or this staff member back there are no formal classes there are mentors you can learn from each other you have all the access to everything you need if you want it but you have to kind of find that motivation yourself and you can leave at certain times just as long as somebody else comes with you and you're checked out and people know where you are and it's a completely like radical view of uh, of schools and it's been around for i don't know a couple decades and there's i remember something like 20 or 30 different schools around the nation that are similar or based off of it so this is what the book kind of gets into is the sudbury valley uh school so i my question to you is now that people kind of understand like if you had a kid would you send them to Sudbury Valley. 
because I would not. I would not unless I hit a brick wall seven times and then I'd have to go find something to fit. Like, I believe in public education. I wouldn't be a public university teacher educator if I didn't believe in public education. There are certain things to fix, right? 100%. There are things, rooms for improvement, like for, for a lot of things. But I, I don't know if Sudbury Valley is the answer to everybody. And I think at a certain point in the book, they do talk about how, you know, I think towards the end, um, he, he lays out this, like, probably last couple pages of where he lays out this idea of having a community center that serves all of these kids. And to me, I feel like it's very idealistic. Like, the high school that I went to was 900 people in the graduating class. We had, like, over 3,500 kids in this high school. So what community center are you going to build that provides all of those kids, 3,500 kids, 3,800 kids in that one community, and 15 minutes away, there's two other high schools of the same size. So what community center can you build that costs less and can still deliver the promise of teaching all of those kids? There would be so many kids that would fall through the cracks. And I think in these special cases, in these smaller schools, I think it works. I mean, clearly it works, but, you know, the the deep dives that went into unschooling, like parents that are pulling them their kids out of school and they're like, look, this person ended up going to Harvard Medical School. And I'm like, yeah, but 15 other people in that situation probably dropped out and never got their GED because you took them out of school. So there's there's so much here. Like there, there was an article this, uh, this last week, either in the... New York Times, Washington Post that talked about these micro schools and how there was a big homeschooling movement in the last uh, couple years after the pandemic that people went into homeschool and they're like, we're keeping our kids in homeschool. The parent was staying home and doing the education and now they're actually uh, outsourcing it. Like there's, I don't remember what the name of this company is, but there's like an almost an Airbnb for homeschools. So there's, the article highlighted this nurse who quit and became a home teacher. She doesn't have a degree. She just runs a little pod of seven to eight students who are all doing homeschool. So they're, she's guiding them through their online modules and things that they're learning. They make food together. They play outside. But the person overlooking this education is not the parent and is no longer a, a certified teacher like what what a, what is the education like in that situation? Like I feel like when you go way off, I think public education is a way better system. Thoughts on that? On my controversial hot take? That's hard, right? Like it it's hard. Uh you're right. Clearly we have things that need to be fixed about our current public education system and I mean I my both my children went through public schools. Um, pros and cons, you know, would I have sent either of my kids to a school like that? No, not either. Um, but they also didn't need it. They mm-hmm. did okay. They thrived. They, they managed through, you know, like they didn't just manage, they did well. Yeah. 
through school. But, right, we see lots of kids who don't. I mean, I know lots of kids who've never returned to regular school uh, since 2020. They continue to do their learning online because mm -hmm. it works better for them. Yeah. Um, and so, right, like having these options, I, I agree with you in that I struggle with outsourcing teaching. Yeah. I mean, we all know that that's a huge problem, not just with these kinds of schools, but, you know, lots of places you don't even ever have to go through any education program to become a teacher now, um, especially in areas like ours. Um, and, and that's hard, right? Because we obviously think what we do is important and has value and requires some specific training. These are, these are hard questions and I think good things for us to talk about and think about, but I, I don't know, I don't know solutions either. Yeah. And I, and I think that there's definitely some, okay. So some students do not fit well into public school and they should have other options, right? We talk about student choice. Let's, let's talk about student choice and how they're educated. Absolutely. But for the vast majority of students with a modified education system that maybe is not exactly the same. And I understand completely that, you know, schools and uh, school districts around major universities that are suburban, high income, they're really good schools, right? And there are rural schools and suburban schools and, and urban schools, which are really, really not good and they need a lot of work. And the education system is not the same across the US. But I think at the very end of the uh, of the book, and I say this with a caveat, that I agreed with a lot of things that the the author said, and I it, this book made me think a lot. And um, but at the end, he talks about the inner uh, the internet being a resource, and he's like, why would we go back to what we've been doing in education with a teacher when you have the whole world at your fingertips? And I feel like that was not, I mean, that's not how students learn. And we know, we know that because we all had to teach some sort of asynchronous learning during the pandemic. And we see the problems with self-directed learning online. Here's this, read it and come back and tell me about it. Like, I think teachers are motivators, right? Teachers are people who guide you through the curriculum. They give feedback and just giving a kid access to the internet and saying, hey, this is now your teacher. Like, yes, it would work for some students, but I would say 90% of, if you just take a, a controlled study, you put one class and it's like your internet, your teacher is the internet. And this class is taught by a licensed teacher, night and day difference for 90% of of them meaning like the teacher has guided them through that class much better but i don't know i i don't want to be too negative on on those but those are i i wanted to also bring in some topics that i wanted to see where you disagreed with and kind of seeing you know dr gray is not a pe teacher right he loves play he believes in play and that is part of physical education but part of learning but it's not everything so sean what do you what do you think i cut you off earlier yeah that's a really that's a really tough uh question risto what i sent my kids to that school and i don't know if i can answer that um i'm reminded of uh experience in growing up um i didn't get into play i didn't get into playing football you know tackle football 
until I was in eighth grade. Um, my mom was kind of skeptical on it. Um, she was an educator herself and, and played athletics growing up. And I wanted to play football in eighth grade, and she wouldn't let me play for the Pop Warner team. She, she said I had to play for the middle school team. And the reason that she said I had to play for the middle school team is because it was coached by teachers, you know, certified and credentialed teachers, whereas the Pop Warner team was coached by dads. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's a lot to be learned from what Dr. Gray is talking about. And I don't necessarily think that it's like, oh, so I don't have to do anything. Just let them play. You know, in in uh, youth, like in the youth football camp I was, I was going with, they're still, they're, they don't necessarily play, you know, they struggle with, with free play. And I, I think you made a great point the role of teachers as motivators, providing feedback as a guide for learning. There's another book that I read right after this one, and it's called The Ethic of Excellence. And it's by an author and an educator named Ron Berger. And I think it's a good demonstration of how a lot of the qualities that Dr. Gray talks about, how how they can be integrated into public education. And, you know, I think an education is one of the is one of the most powerful things in the world. And a lot of what Ron Berger talks about, you know, he goes and, and consults um, from school to school. And it's really a lot of the student driven learning, um, project based learning, community based learning, where they are engaging in real world experiences. Um, and the students are making a lot of decisions of the uh of the of the program so i think there's a lot that can be applied to the um the system of public education i don't i don't necessarily think oh just cut them loose you know let everybody do whatever they want yeah 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 and i don't see any any country any country being taking that route and there are great systems of education all around the world that are exemplars of what is good public education and look there's good private education there's tremendous private education that's done very very well that can be a small model to replicate but when you scale up there's so many issues like you know i used to do after school programming in new york city public schools and that is 1.1 million students going to New York City Department of Education schools. How do you like? How do you know what's happening in in school one to one thousand? Like, there's no way that you can follow that stuff. So, a big thing you have to do if you run a good system is trust the educators and trust the teachers. And there's a big, big, big lack of trust in in the US system, from parents to teachers, to principals to teachers, teachers to principals. Um, there's, a, there's a book that I read last year about the Finnish education system and trust. And they, uh, it's by, I think, Pussy Salberg is one of the authors of that. And he talks about how if you ask teachers in Finland, they have a lot of trust. Parents have a lot of trust and administrators have a lot of trust in what teachers do. So you're able to 
you know, they all have master's degrees. They all have gone through a rigorous application just to get in. Like 10% of applicants get into these teaching positions. And so um, I think it's different. But here, like, you can't trust the teachers. So you have to highly structure learning. You have to highly structure the classes. And you don't trust t students to cross the street in a busy highway. So right behind. So one of the schools in in a school district around Mason, one of the schools that we had an after school program in, I asked what percentage gets bused and it's a vast majority because there's two big highways. One has an overpass and one has a, a light, but you have to cross like six lanes total. And the people who live on the other side, it would literally take you five minutes to walk. They get bused. It's a middle school. They get bused to the other side of the highway because of the risk of them getting, you know, run over or they're doing something, you know, I don't know, whatever, crossing the street. But they have to take a bus that's five minutes. I feel like there are very, very, very few places in this world that you would bus a person five, a five minute walk to get home. You would build a pedestrian bridge. Yes, you look for safety, but you'd build a pedestrian bridge so people can go in there and that just hasn't happened there or you build a tunnel but so there's like there's so much of the lack of trust that i think it makes it difficult for for us to scale up and do do the things that the research papers say how to do there's a ton of really good books and research papers out there that that give ideas of what to do we're just not implementing them ingrid and don't you think that's a, like a systemic problem that we have right um you know, we have our schools, many of our schools have become huge, like college campuses. I mean, some high schools that I go to are like, I feel like I'm on my, my college campus. They're huge. And so to service that many people, you have to sort of institutionalize things. Mm -hmm. Whereas in this book, it's a smaller setting. You can, you, we all know this. You can do very different things when yeah. you have 50 kids rather than when you have 2,000 or 3,000. And and again, you know, I, I go back to so much responsibility continues to get put on schools and teachers, right? Um, and, and where does this notion of uh, responsibility uh, of children uh, come from parents, the community, like, all, you know, families, all of these things, and instead of well, the school's going to feed them. The school's going to watch them all day. The school's going to educate them. I mean, there's only so many things that schools can do. Uh, and I, I think that it's, there's so many great ideas in the book and there's so many things that resonate with me. But then the practical side of me says, we can't do this with the system that we have. Yeah. And like you said, it's not going to work. That's not going to be great for everyone. Yeah. And the structure, like, the, the structure in a lot of the US is that we don't have really good public transportation. Now, that's different than New York City DOE because you can take the subway or the bus to school and that is that is just what you do at after a certain point. But like in suburban communities, you rely on yeah. school buses. So if you do an after school program, how do you get home? Okay, so certain schools have two layers of buses. So they take the first people home and then they come back and do an after school pickup 
It's amazing. It's amazing, but that's that doesn't happen across, right? So if you are staying back, they, don't, for, they won't do that here. Yeah. Yeah, and you stay for football practice, then how do you get home? You can't ride a bike because there's no yeah, bike lanes. You have someone who can take you home. Yeah, it's cars. So you you can't ride your bike because there's no bike lane. You can't walk because it's not safe to walk home. And there's no bus that just like goes through. Like if you think about city design right. and urban design in different parts of the world, like the bus route goes past the school because that's you know like that's where people go. They go to school yeah. and then they go home every single day Monday Monday through Friday. But we don't have those. And that's bus where routes. it changed a lot. You know, like when I was a kid, there was an act, they called it the activity bus. And it didn't matter what your activity was. Some people did band, some people did sports. You could just stay after, meet with the teacher, hang out with your friends. And then the activity bus left, you know, like, I don't even remember what time. And then that bus would take you home, mm-hmm. you know, but they, they don't do that now. Yeah. That activity bus must have had the coolest kids on board. How how many of these of these things that uh, we're talking about come from what Dr. Gray wrote about with you know how schools came to be in the first place with the religious you know the religious conformity um, the role of agriculture and the um, kind of the industrial complex um of the nine to five work day and those sorts of things it seems like that's is, is kind of the the driving you know why we why we are where we are mm-hmm. yeah and i mean there's a lot to change about teacher education too in the way that we're mm-hmm. we're doing it and the timing we do and the scheduling that we have and i think there's there's a there's a ton uh left to be you know fixed in teacher education ton left to be fixed in 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 teaching and yeah a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of the mm-hmm. things that we do is for one reason because we've always done it this way and mm-hmm. how how does that change with artificial intelligence with self-driving cars with um you know all of this stuff that can drastically change how we commute how we learn what we do like at what age are we supposed to start doing asynchronous learning with kids? Because mm-hmm. in high school, it's like, ah, not really. And then three months later, you go on to a college campus as an 18-year-old. Three months ago, asynchronous learning was like, hey, we're not doing that. And then you take a fully asynchronous biology 101 course. It's like three months later, mm-hmm. it's totally acceptable because you're in college. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Um, so I guess as we're kind of wrapping this up, I I wanted to, uh, talk a little bit about, um, like one of the, one of the things he brought up was that he compared the, uh, education system to a prison. Did you, do you remember that? Like he, he talked about how education or schools, sorry, not the education system, but schools to prisons. And he said, uh, it's a prison because you have to go and you can't leave until we tell you to leave. And that is the definition of a prison. And I'm like, well, okay, in that strict sense of what that is, then yes. But 
I don't know. I feel like you have to have compulsory education because at a certain point, like, I don't know, if you let a four-year-old or fourth grader just say, I don't want to go to school. Like, well, you need to learn. Like, I don't want to go to school. Okay. It's not compulsory education, so you can go play all day. Like, that's not... I, I wouldn't I wouldn't sign off on that idea. I feel like there's a big gap there. Like I kind of fell off in that point about um, linking the schools to being prisons. Yeah, um, it, when I did my master's at Portland State, you know that's where I really learned about the school to prison pipeline. And um, I understand the point that he's trying to make, you know, but you know I I, I agree with you in that going to the other end of the back that libertarian everybody can do what they want um you know that that may not be the best uh the best route to go i think you know what do you do when when the kids do get to school and that's where that teacher education piece comes in um you know what's occurring when when they get to school and um you know are they just is compliance number one or, you know, what are those sorts of things? Yeah. And there's, there's definitely issues in like behavior management that lead to that school to prison pipeline. Like, and, you know, restorative justices are things that, you know, restorative Mm -hmm. justice, restorative practices are, are approaches that are trying to stop that. And, you know, I, I get that part, but this idea of like, you know, kids, kids will say that probably a lot of kids will say like, Oh, it feels like a prison. And it's like, yeah, but at a certain point, like we have to, you know, you have to teach them what they don't know. Like they just don't know that Mm -hmm. yet. And you have to, you know, obviously ease up on the gas a little bit. Don't push a kid over, uh, over their limit if they're not ready on that specific day and having flexible. And that's, that's a good teacher. That's a teacher that understands Mm -hmm. and listens to their Mm -hmm. students. It's, an administrator or a principal or a guidance counselor that can understand like this person needs a little space and maybe we need to have multiple types mm-hmm. of different lesson plans for students who are getting through and having choice. And, you know, I, I know that there's a ton of students in the U S all around the nation who see that next three weeks is going to be basketball or next two weeks is going to be basketball and they just roll their eyes and they're like oh my god i cannot like go through another three weeks of basketball i hate it like okay so teach something else at the same time or try to figure out how you can have some choice in certain things like there are just certain skills and certain activities that you cannot convince somebody to like and if they're just going to not participate. Is it better to give them another option of doing something else, giving some sort of choice and student voice and how to meet those, even if you have to meet state standards or national standards? Like, I think there's a lot yeah. left there to improve. Yeah, I always advocate, you know, to to something as simple as a survey for incoming ninth graders to them and their parents. Yeah. Uh, what are you interested in learning about? What sorts of activities do you want included in your physical education experience? Mm-hmm. And then designing your curriculum based on those values and interests. Yeah. And then also within the curriculum, providing the the avenues for uh, for making choices. Those you know, I just keep coming back to those more student directed um, uh, teaching styles. Yeah. No. Within within instruction. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that those are great first steps to start listening students. And mm-hmm. maybe you're not changing the entire education system, but you're slowly starting to change the culture in your school and understanding and becoming more student-centered and student-driven. Um, uh, Sean, any any last points as we're kind of coming up on this hour? Like anything that we haven't covered at that you or covered yet that you kind of felt like was interesting or made you think differently? Um, I mean, I just you know it kind of changed the lens at which I see 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 some things. I mean, even going to the park with my nephews, you know, I'll I'll, I'll see, I'll just pay attention to like. You know, sometimes you have a parent trying to show their kid how to go over the monkey bar, and mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, ah, you know. And so it kind of changed changed the lens at which um, I view things. And I think I think my big takeaways were kind of those points that I made at the beginning, where it really brought um, those more student directed teaching styles, TPSR, um, and giving those giving those avenues for um, for free play. And uh, and that student-directed um, learning opportunities, and how can we do that? And how can we prepare our pre-service teachers to do that um, yeah. for their for their students? Yeah, and I think that that playground example is great. So if you want to re uh, reconsider and rethink how you parent and make your brain go haywire when you take your kid to a playground, like this is the book to read. Because I, I mm-hmm, you know, I have a two and a half year old and. You know, in the beginning, I, I was very like behind her because she was climbing very high and doing stuff. And I just obviously I, I don't want her to fall like two feet to the ground or three feet to the ground when she's, you know, super small. But now I'm like, OK, how much do I stay safe? And he talks all about, you know, also about, um, you know, playing with children, not directing the learning. And so I'm always thinking, like, am I pushing this forward or is she pushing this forward? And where am I able to like kind of find the balance of being present so she doesn't get hurt, but also giving her freedom to do the self-directed play? Yeah, you reminded me of actually one one big takeaway that you were describing was the heterogeneous grouping with with the mm. older and the younger kids, right? Because yeah. those older kids provide a guide, you know, for those younger kids. Um, so that's another thing is is that heterogeneous. Um, grouping yeah. with the older the older students or even the adults just kind of being a guide there, yeah. not necessarily um telling them what to do but yeah and he he described it in the book really well about this like like stick ball baseball game in the yard and all these different kids from all these different age groups come and when you know johnny who's seven uh doesn't know how to play baseball really well and the pitcher is a 14 year old kid. And if you don't throw underhand or throw like a soft lob, the 14 year olds, the jerk, like, Hey, what are you doing? Like, you know, this kid's seven years old. You can't throw your best pitches at him. You got to get him enough to just hit. And so they teach that kid how to hit. But then when the 14 year olds against the 13 year old, really good baseball player, you'd be a jerk for throwing a soft lob pitch you got to give them your best shot because mm-hmm, the competition mm-hmm, level ends mm-hmm. and kids can find and figure it out. And you see an eight-year-old playing with a four-year-old, like the eight-year-olds understands to be gentle and soft. And if the four-year-old wants the ball, they're like, ah, they're young. They get the ball. Like, that's fine. You know, so it's interesting to see that kind of group play. And, you know, it might not be the group play that they choose to do all the time. 
but when you have that community and they definitely know how to do it so that's a that's a good part. yeah i mean that's how i grew that. up yeah that's how i grew up i mean even this summer in the backyard uh me and my dad we chip uh golf balls and he'll and he'd even like we'll say let's modify the rules to make it even you mm-hmm. know and uh but that's how i that's how i grew up and so it reminded me a lot of those experiences yeah yeah. Well, awesome, Sean. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Ingrid had to take off, so uh, she gave us a uh, visual wave. So uh, thanks to Ingrid as well. Um, so again, for for those of you who are listening, uh, if you want to read the book, uh, it is titled "Free to Learn: Why Unleashing the Instinct to Play Will Make Our Children Happier, More Self Reliant, and Better Students for Life" by Peter Gray. Uh, available on Audible, and also you can buy it as an actual book that you can touch. Um, but Thanks, Sean. Really appreciated uh, your uh, your input on here, and we'll have to figure out another another book for a for another book club. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Risto, for having me. Absolutely. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, Our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.